Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for giving us a listen this week. How are you doing? It's nice to have you with us. If this is your first time listening to The Next Track, well, you should know right now that the, the initiation rite is for you to go out and tell a friend about how much you enjoyed the show. Everybody else... You probably have already done this. Give us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts, or if you're using Overcast, which we know a lot of people do, just tap that star on every episode. That helps us with recommendations in the app, and future listeners will salute you. Uh, a few episodes ago, we had Professor Kyle Gann on, who was with us to talk about John Cage's silent piece, 4 minutes and 33 seconds. And you can go and listen to that if you want. There will be a link in the show notes. But one of the things that struck me, and, and Kirk, too, who knows a lot more about John Cage than most people, one of the things that surprised us was that Professor Gann told us that one of the factors that led Cage to create this silent piece was that he wanted to submit it to the Muzak company so that people who had to endure Muzak programming could at least every so often hear four minutes of silence because... Background music was intrusive, and nobody asked for it. And he was, you know, adamant about this. It was really fascinating. And that got Kirk and I thinking about how often during our day, during our week, do we come within an earshot of music where you least expected it and where maybe you don't expect it. And it's not a choice that you've made. You just have walked into this place where suddenly there's music. I don't know if it's there to fill the void or, or why it's there. Does it fill a void or does it fill some gaps? We were talking about this last week, and I pointed out that the supermarket where I usually shop does not play any music. I'm used to supermarkets playing music and, and, and announcements, you know, Doug Adams, please come to customer service, Doug Adams, and that sort of thing. So the supermarket I go to, for those in the UK, it's Waitrose, obviously, they don't play any music. And it's not like you're missing anything. It's not like the music is necessary in a way... Sometimes when you're in a supermarket and you hear a good song, that gets you motivated. But the problem is you often hear music you don't like. And, and that's one of the problems with background music is how do you please everyone? And I think Muzak came along to try in part to please everyone, but also to do it in a way that there are no rights to pay. So they would purchase rights to do re-recordings of Beatles songs or whatever it was, but they wouldn't play the original recordings. And they were all mellowed down. They were all like the Kenny G version oh, of the Beatles. Oh, they were incredibly simplistic arrangements. I mean, they sounded like they were scored for a uh, for a junior high school band or everything was quantized to the nearest quarter beat. It was just, <laughs> I mean, it was just awfully bland ersatz music. And uh, but actually, you know, now that we've been talking about this, I, w I was remembering that I had read an article about a, a musician who who s did these sessions. And, you know, he'd go in, get a score. They do one or two takes, move on to the next one, move on to the next one. I mean, they were they were literally manufacturing this music. Well, session musicians who make their money from recording commercials and jingles and things for TV shows, you know, for them, it's not a big deal. But it's true that it has this sort of intrusive nature that your senses are already assailed by so many things, sights and sounds and things that you feel when it's too cold in the supermarket. By the way, Waitrose, turn down the air conditioning. We have to bring jackets every time we go there. You smell things in supermarkets. You smell the bakery counter. You smell the cheese counter or the fish counter. And adding 
something to the sound is like adding an additional sense. Maybe they don't do it because it distracts from the other senses, the sight and the smell and, and all of that. Well, it also may be they don't do it because other stores do do it. Waitrose is an upscale supermarket. We were talking last week. You sort of suggested it's like Whole Food, but it's not because Whole Food is kind of a cult <laughs> and it's more based on organic things. And Waitrose is is what the British would call it a posh supermarket. It's higher end, but it's not, you know, it's not Fortnum and Mason's. Um, again, all those who aren't in the UK, you can check all these names out in Wikipedia. Another thing I suspect, and this is really just a guess, is that sometime in the 1950s, some university came out with a study that said, when consumers hear music passively in the background, they're more likely to feel better about themselves and buy more products. And this is the sort of research that sort of studies you would see in this post-war, better living through science sort of attitude we were going through. And, you know, I can definitely see Muzak going in and say, see, studies prove that playing music in your grocery store will make people buy more things. And here's our entry-level tier to sign up for. Well, one of us did research for this show. Well, I did some um, research, but not in this Well, you area. didn't do this research. No. And what's interesting is that, so Muzak goes back. It started back in the 1920s, and there were several patents granted. You should describe how it, wait, well, let's talk about what, what Muzak actually did, because it's pretty amazing. They figured out how to send sound over electrical wires. Yes. Much like your, what do you call those things in your house that sends Ethernet? Yeah, the power line adapters where you're sending signals through the electrical cables. Well, these these people figured out how to send sound over electrical wires, and they called it Wired Radio. That was the original um, company name, right? Right. And, and that's an amazing thing, because at the time, there was barely only radio. Regular, that is broadcast radio. But the, the problem with broadcast radio was that it could only go so far. But these um, companies found that they could send music pretty much anywhere as long as they were, there was electrical wires. Later, they used uh, phone lines, but early on, it was uh, power lines. Right, but you would need a special receiver, which means that they could control it. It wasn't over the airwaves. Let us give credit to Major General George Owen Squire, who was behind all of this. I can just see him with his big mutton chop sideburns and all, and his bolo tie, perhaps, smoking a big cigar. What about the name? Where do you think the name came from? Well, that's, got, that's a good story, too. You want me to tell you? I can tell you. Why don't you tell well, me? Well, the gentleman was so... Because that'll show that you have done some research. <laughs> he was so enamored with the word Kodak that George Eastman had come up with because it wasn't a, a real word, but yet it had it had oomph. So he came up with Muzak because he thought it sounded like Kodak. That was very good, Doug. Thank you. I like that story. To get back to what you were saying before, one thing that they started doing early on was organize sort of playlists to maintain productivity of workers. They would have 15-minute blocks. They would get louder and, and brassier in instrumentation, I'm quoting Wikipedia, to encourage workers to speed up their pace, kind of like that Charlie Chaplin movie. And after the 15-minute segment would end, it would fall silent for 15 minutes. Oh, this is early on, though. This is early on. And Wikipedia says this was partly done for technical reasons. Maybe they couldn't maintain the broadcast. But company-funded research also showed that alternating music to silence limited listener fatigue and made the stimulus effect of stimulus progression more effective. So this was really a way of manipulating people. 
This was capitalists turning the workers into machines, productivity machines. It does sound a bit like Metropolis, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, Metropolis has that great scene where everything is is done to a certain uh, tempo and speed and the clock and yeah. all that stuff. Um, that is interesting. And, uh, well, I guess like I guessed, I, I guess I didn't get to that paragraph in the, in the Wikipedia article. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's what I suspected is that, that, that they found that it was there was some positive a uh, result would come from playing music in the background, whether it was increased productivity or make you feel better about yourself or better about shopping or better about waiting in a lobby or a waiting room. A bank lobby, for example. Exactly. Then they found that it was, it was better. But they found that the silence was better, too. The alternation of music and silence right. instead of this constant stream of music. Because when you do have music in a supermarket, when you do have background music, you often don't have silence even between the tracks. They... They sort of segue together. I think with actual Muzak, I'm remembering way back when, when I heard this in elevators, there were brief pauses between tracks. I don't recall. Um, I've heard it parodied so many times, um, and I've had to parody it myself. Well, it is a cliche now, isn't it? Yeah. We, we, use it we use that term to describe anything that's just not very good. It's worth noting that the company no longer exists. It was bought out in 2011 by a company called Moon Media, who in 2013 announced they were retiring the name of Muzak. I think the company went bankrupt. And as, as is often the case in media, things have gone back and forth. And it, it remains in our minds as a term to describe vapid, bland, tasteless music. That's pretty much it. In fact, um, I was just talking about having to parody Muzak. The reason I would need to do that is because I used to do radio commercials. And sometimes the commercial would be set inside a grocery store. And how do you establish that the characters that are going to be talking about the grocery store are actually in a grocery store? You have to establish it really fast. Now, you can have the, the people artificially say, well, here we are in the grocery store. Or you could have some sound effects. And that's what we used to do. And guaranteed, we would always use tinny high-end music high eq'd with a little reverb on it and a cash register and boom you automatically know you're in a, in a grocery store now you can still take out the cash register and hear muzak and you still know that you're you know somewhere in a place that plays muzak a public space yeah but the funny thing is it only takes two sound effects to establish that you're in a grocery store which is how ubiquitous this background music in grocery stores has become because it only takes that minor suggestion to put your mind into the grocery store it's interesting because it's been so long since i've heard that i have to i have to check out some other supermarkets here i mean we we go to waitrose because it's the closest and and sometimes my partner goes to a couple of the other grocery stores but i rarely do uh, some months ago on another podcast that we were talking about something to do with grocery stores. And I said to, to, to one of my co-hosts, you know, I think they don't play music in this grocery store. It, it's like I wasn't sure because I'm so used to music in grocery stores. And the next time I went, I confirmed that there's no music. I um, I do the shopping for our household and I, I go to the grocery store pretty much every day. And the, the stores that I go to are Star Market and Stop and Shop. <laughs> which is how they're called in the Boston area. So I go to the Star Market is right down the street. And Stop and Shop, I got to drive to for a bit. But they both play music. And I have heard the most, I'm, I'm in the store regularly, both of them. I've heard the craziest 
songs in there. I was in I was in Stop and Shop one day, and I heard a New Order song. It was like something like True Faith or Bizarre Love Triangle or something. And these aren't new. These aren't re-recordings. These are the original. No, recordings. these were the original recordings. Yeah. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this is fantastic. And one time I was at Star Market, and um, this crazy surf instrumental music came on and it wasn't it was like the ventures it was easily that kind of quality and i remember i was in the aisle and i just stopped and just listened to it and there just <laughs> happened to be a manager stocking the shelves there i said sometimes you guys play great music he goes you don't know i've heard stuff in here that i've never heard before and obviously he was a music fan as well because we were we were talking about it for a little bit and i just can't believe some of the things that they're able to get for these music services. Obviously, it must be based on uh, licensing and, you know, getting the cheapest license and, and, and things like that. But uh, to hear, I mean, you do hear pop music, but then to hear New Order <laughs> in the grocery store, especially Stop and Shop. I, I will have to check out a Stop and Shop next time I'm in your neighborhood. I think it's worth pointing out that you don't necessarily get the music in a store from a music service. You can play your own music if you have the appropriate license with the royalty collection agency, whatever it was. I worked in a French bookstore for about three years in the early 1990s, and we paid a certain amount of money to license the right to play music, and we could play anything. Of course, this money just goes into the big pool of royalties. We weren't required to keep a log like you were on radio, so it's not the people whose music we play who get the money. We would most often put on classical music. The bookstore sold some classical CDs, so we'd have about a dozen of them. Someone would put one in at some time in the morning, and then after about an hour, it would be silent, and someone would notice, hey, there's no music on, and either put the same CD on again, which got annoying, or put another one in. Or then the boss would come in, and if it was silent, he would glare at someone and say, there's no music playing. Yeah, it's funny how the absence of it, um, even though it's completely an artificial background, because you don't have an orchestra playing there. <laughs> you know, and people, people, you know, when I was a kid, I remember, you know, watching movies and things like that and asking my father, you know, where's the music come from? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I literally asked him that. And he said, well, you know, they do it later or they're off stage. I think the first time it was explained to me that they're off stage, you know, they're they're in the background somewhere. Well, if you think the, about the theater or the opera, they're in a pit or here at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon Avon, they're off to the sides of the stage above like at the ends of of the seats, it's a it's a horseshoe shaped seating section. So so they're at the ends, and sometimes there's lights and you can see them because they have lights to read their scores. And sometimes it's dark enough that you don't, but they always stand up for applause at the end. It used to occur to me that you go to see a musical, and I mean you know a musical where there's songs and talking, and then another song and talking. The music is only played when they're singing, but if you go to a movie, you hear music in the background. And no one's singing to it. No one is. No one in the movie is aware of it. Only the audience is aware of it. But in live performances, you don't have that. I mean, you have some incidental music occasionally, but in a non-musical play, you don't have this artificial background stuff going on. But in films and television, you do. And that used to confuse me a bit too, because it seems very artificial and wrong. But yet it seems right because it's changing the mood and doing stuff like that. But then conversely. Why don't they do it on stage more frequently than if music is so important to telling a story? It's very interesting about the background music that we hear in television and movies and musicals and, and on stage. Well, it's interesting what you say, because here at the RSC, the music is incidental music. This isn't music because, you know, Hamlet decides to sing one of his soliloquies. 
I'll put a link in the show notes to an interview we did with Paul Englishby, who's a composer and who has composed music for the Royal Shakespeare Company. They recently announced that starting next season, being the season that starts in January or February, they're going to integrate music more tightly into the plays, often with the musicians on stage. And this to them is a major initiative because there's only a couple of theaters that actually have live music in all of the United Kingdom. Uh, the RSC does, the National Theater does, but not for everything. It's ex- expensive. It's expensive, yeah. The money. yeah. yeah. Um, it's so much easier if you go in a studio and record the music and just play the tape. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how they do this. I mean, I've seen things where there's a character on stage playing a lute. While, uh, let's see, Henry IV, there's a bit where one of the characters is singing in Welsh to her husband, and so someone's on there playing a lute. And that, you know, makes sense because they're supposed to be sitting around and lounging, and, and it kind of fits. Some of the plays actually have music in them. like uh, Well, they do, yeah. Uh, Sigh No More, Ladies, is one from uh, the, the funny one, <laughs> one of the comedies. The funny I one. Uh, much Ado About Nothing. Right. And As You Like It has a couple of songs, but the version that they did here five years ago had a half a dozen songs that were composed by Laura Marling. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a sort of a folk singer-songwriter. So sometimes here they use... They they invite a composer who's going to be part of the selling point for the play. But let's go back to the history of background music. I mean, it goes back to, you know, that cave where where the guy was sitting in the back banging the bones on the ground, you know, doing the early drums or playing the flute. Bone bangers? Bone bangers, yes. Yeah. And and flute hoppers. Yeah. <laughs> but the... I think the oldest form of deliberate background music is what was called in German Tafel music, table music. It started in the mid-16th century, and it was used to play music when, you know, rich dudes were having a feast or something or a banquet. And it was very, it, it was music that didn't call attention to itself. And if you look up Telemann, George Philip Telemann on whatever your streaming service you use, look up his Tafel music, you'll find that this is very, very light classical music. Uh, move forward to the 20th century, and Eric Satie did what was called musique d'ameublement, or furniture music. He only wrote five pieces like this, but his idea was that they would be played as if they were furniture, as if it was a piece of furniture in a house that had its own musical existence. And probably the best-known one in our lifetime is Brian Eno's Music for Airports. I've got the liner notes from the original release, and here's one of the things he said. Over the past three years, I've become interested in the use of music as ambience and have come to believe that it is possible to produce material that can be used thus without being in any way compromised. To create a distinction between my own experiments in this area and the products of various purveyors of canned music, I have begun using the term ambient music. And he mentioned Muzak. He says, This has led most discerning listeners and most composers to dismiss entirely the concept of environmental music as an idea worthy of attention. And it's interesting. So Eno said, okay, Muzak is really bad, but let me make good Muzak. And that's essentially what he did in Music for Airports. And over the years, in all the music that he's created for different installations. You know what's interesting? It's background music. It's really, um, it's only come into its own in like the past hundred years. I mean, if you could afford to hire an orchestra (laughs) to be around you, and I'm talking about a pop orchestra or something like that, and you could have live music at your party, um, that was one thing, but when recorded music came around and radio came around in the 30s and 40s, everybody could have background music. Everybody could have, or foreground music if you wanted it, but it was it was a lot easier. And we became, a, a, I think, 
adjusted to the idea that, well, background music can really happen anywhere. You can, you know, because it can. It's it's perfectly possible to have it anywhere and everywhere. And it's it still strikes me as being very artificial. But even though we don't think of it that way, we don't think that, well, like when I was a kid looking at TV shows, where's the orchestra? It's like, why... Where, why, why are you playing? Why are we playing music? Why is it music that we're, we're doing with this space? I've been to people's houses for, you know, dinners or cocktail parties, whatever, where they'll put on some music or stick an iPod on shuffle someplace to play music. And as you say, why do you need music when people are sitting around and talking? It's like the music has to be at a level so it doesn't disturb the conversation. So it has to be really soft. So people aren't going to notice it. But is it that you're afraid of the silence that might occur if no one has anything to say? Is this existential angst being expressed as as pushing the button on the iPod and putting it into random shuffle mode? That's very interesting. I'll go to my brother's house and he'll put interesting music on and that's okay. And he'll wait for someone to notice, you know, some bizarre. The, the, the last time he did it, he played that Brian Ferry Orchestra album for me and it took like four or five songs for me to realize that these are jazz age versions of Roxy Music songs. So that was his little joke. But otherwise, he would just put on like, you know, stuff that we grew up listening to as kids or whatever and have it on in the background. And I can't imagine going to a a, a musician's house or a, a fellow enthusiast that at, at some point they didn't put music on, either passively or actively. Yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking back to when we were teenagers in our prime music growth period we didn't put music on in the background well no, no. that's not well, true we, it was we an would, activity well we would put a record on because oh yeah let's listen to this bruce springsteen record and then we'd start talking and performing whatever actions we were performing so it would fade into the background in some ways we wouldn't sit listening to it expressly but the idea wasn't to fill the space the idea was like well this new record is really good and you're not just going to sit there. Well, you wouldn't leave the room while it was playing. You wouldn't Depends leave. If you needed to pee. If, you, the, if the point was to, if the point was to be listening to the album while you were yeah. socializing and you know hanging out, then you know that was an activity. That was part of the social activity. So it's interesting to see that there are other areas where music is played as a background. And we were discussing this last week before concerts. I think pretty much every major concert I went to back in the day had music coming over the PA before the concert, from the moment that they opened the doors till just before the concert, because it would keep people occupied, it would create an atmosphere, and if there was silence, people would start doing that thing where they start clapping and then they clap in unison and stamp their feet <laughs> yeah. and you know get a right. little bit raucous. Right. One good example of this is on Yes's live album, Yes Songs, which opens with a bit from the end of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, that they would sort of segue from that into the first song that they would play, Siberian Cat True. But every concert I ever went to in a major venue, I'm thinking Madison Square Garden, Palladium, whatever, would always have music. And I, and I always wondered, who picked the music? Was it some guy, one of the electricians? Was it the <laughs> band who actually had their own cassettes that they had organized? Or was, was there someone in Madison Square Garden who was responsible for programming the music before... A Pink Floyd concert. Well, I have a suspicion that it was the bands that picked that sort of music. You know, they brought a cassette with them. Um, you know, if you saw a headlining act, I remember going to see Aerosmith a number of times when I was in high school and college. And I seem to remember that they would always play like old Yardbirds and old Rolling Stones stuff and, and things like that, things that they liked. And it was interesting. And the reason I remember is because the music informed us about Aerosmith. Um, there didn't seem to be any reason to play old Yardbirds and old Rolling Stones music before any arbitrary 
music show. So we just always assumed that um, that music played before the show. What is that called anyway? Yeah. Do you show music? I don't well, even know the. I just call it pre-concert music. But here, here's something interesting. I, I saw Bob Dylan twice. I don't go to a lot of pop rock concerts here, but I saw Bob Dylan twice since I've been in the UK. I'm pretty sure there was no music played before the concert started. And this was in two different venues, and, and that would be a choice of the artist to not want people to be influenced by the music that's played before when you think about it. So that that is an artistic choice, the same as he doesn't let people take photographs. But thinking about that reminds me that people can sort of sit there and talk without having the music behind them. So is it really necessary? Is it is it there to pump people up, to warm them up? If you've ever seen a, um, a TV show being recorded live, a, a comedy being recorded live, you have the warm-up person who's either one of the members of the cast or, or a comedian. Uh, I saw Saturday Night Live um, live many times back in the 70s, and they would always have someone out there for about 15 minutes to get people all excited to get them ready to, you know, to, to, to be active, to teach them how to applaud when the applause light goes on and things like that. W one area you get music like that today also is political rallies, and they all have music before them. And this is quite controversial because all these bands are saying, I refuse to let enter the name of your politician you don't like here, play my music before his rallies. Unfortunately, they have absolutely no right to that. The way it works is that it's the venue who pays the rights to the pre-rally music. And the venue can play whatever they want unless there is like a real express limitation by an artist that their music will never be used in this sort of public context. The exception to that is interesting. If it's the music that's played when the politician is coming on stage, which is meant to act as a theme song, then artists do have rights. But if it's just that background music before or after, there's nothing you can do about it. Hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't know it was that specific, but it seems to make sense. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And again, so there it's the venue who's responsible for this. And, and in fact, most people don't realize that when a song is performed live, if it's not in the public domain, there are performance rights that are paid to the rights collection agencies. And these rights are not paid by the performers, but they're paid by the venue. So if you go play Freebird in a bar, the bar has to be able to pay whatever ASCAP or BMI or whatever it is for your right to play Freebird. I guess I, I was aware of that because that's uh, how it works for restaurants, too, I believe. Um, they have to pay for the right to play recorded music. Well, that's so that's different. That's what I was talking about with the bookstore. That's a sort of a, a, a mechanical royalty which allows you to play anything. But I think if music is performed live, then it's very, very different, that the rights are different. It's, it's a blanket thing for the background music. But when it's live, this is what people are paying attention to. I think that's... Uh, if you go to a lot of little tiny places like restaurants and doctor's offices and places like that, they'll have the radio on or Spotify on or something like that, where I suppose there are no... Uh, they have no obligation to pay any licensing. It's a good question. My dentist plays classical FM. Chris, if you're listening, drop me an email. I'd be curious to know whether you have to pay for the right to play that. Or have your solicitor contact us. <laughs> yes, have your solicitor solicit us. So once in the bookstore, I put on a CD of bird calls. There's about 60 minutes of, you know, that kind of music that's recorded in a forest or an aviary. And it was really interesting because I put it on really low. And, you know, these things aren't constant bird calls. It's tweet, tweet, silence, silence, tweet, silence, silence. People were looking by and trying to figure it out. What's interesting is we sold a lot of CDs like that. People like the idea of a bird call CD. 
nowadays you can get that for anything. You can get, you know, oceans and forests and bank lobbies and all sorts of things. You know, I mentioned earlier that we used to produce these radio commercials. And, of course, we had a massive sound effects library with lots of ambient sound effects. And, I mean... I used to go through it so frequently. I remember all the names. You'd have like, you know, rolling surf with light rain and thunder in background. You'd have suburban outdoor sound effects with light bird calls. You'd have, you know, forest sound, things like that. It never occurred to me at the time to to think, well, I should just bring this home and listen to it as background noise. Uh, so that's kind of interesting that now you can get these things. And we listened to a few of them, these hour-long I don't know, mashups of, of sounds, it, it, they really sound kind of cartoonish because it sounds like they've been multi-tracked and, yeah. and, and prepared in a certain way. It doesn't sound, a lot of them didn't sound natural at all. Yeah, there's too much at once instead of it yeah. sounding authentic. Whereas the thing that I had in the 90s was, was someone went out and recorded this for real. And these were the recordings he made. He didn't, he didn't multi-track it. He didn't overdub, you know, the, the birds and the, and the chicadas and, and the wind and everything like that. And, and that I find really interesting. I once had an ocean CD, and it was great for relaxing. You know, you'd get the subtle waves coming, and it wasn't waves crashing. It was like just as the tide's going from low, coming back up, right? Just as the tide is is starting to come in, you get these. You can just picture the the subtle, smooth little fingers of water as they come over your toes and then slide back into the ocean. It's very relaxing because there's a rhythm. There's a slow rhythm to that. Heavy surf, light surf, medium surf, thunder in background. <laughs> what I don't like is the ones of waterfalls. But a lot of people use white noise to sleep because it blocks out. I think it blocks out the perception of many other sounds. And the waterfall sounds like white noise. It's just constant. And you can get the same thing. You take your iPhone, open the voice memos app, go into your bathroom, turn on the cold faucet as high as you can, <laughs> and just record that. You'll get pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it is kind of the same thing. That's funny. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, but people like these white jo noise generators, and, you know, there's no music to them at all. And they're, they're quite um, um, peaceful. And and I've had them before. I've been to uh, have acupuncture and things like that, and they've had white noise generators you fall right asleep. I mean, it's you you know, the, the relax I have. I, in fact, I used to look forward to it. I can go, go to my acupuncture <laughs> treatment and take a nap. I, I've also been where they've played canned New Wave, uh, new Age music. Yeah. Which I, That's which interesting. I don't See, nap to. New Age music was a sort of a background music, wasn't it? You'd go to restaurants, you'd go to health food stores, you'd go to people's houses who were like hippy-dippies, and you'd often have New Age music on in the background. I think some time ago we talked about pianist George Winston, who I think he's unjustly considered to be New Age. He's only New Age because he was on a New Age label. But his music isn't that bland. You know, New Age is like is like the oatmeal of music. Right? I, ha I had a girlfriend once who was really into New Age music. And she came over to my house, my parents' house, with me one time. And she brought some cassettes of New Age music because she thought it would be fun. Everybody would enjoy it in the background. And it was on. And my father, at some point, leaned over to me and said, what is this crap? And I, you know, I said, it's, it's New Age music. It's very Muzak. Yes, that's a good term, muzak -y. So what's interesting now is how many people use music in general as background music. And we use this term on the show very often when we talk about streaming of wallpaper, that music is used as wallpaper just to just to eliminate the silence, just to present a, a, a sort of an oral cocoon to people who need who don't want to be alone with themselves or with their 
work or whatever it is. And, and I think this is the case for a lot of people. To, to be fair, I don't like driving without something going on, whether it's music or a podcast or an audio book. I don't drive much. I don't drive long distances. But wherever I go, I'll either pick my Apple Music radio station or pick an album or something. But I do like music when I'm driving. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it masks the noise of the road in the car, which I find annoying. Oh, and relieves the monotony. I think if you, it, driving can tend to be monotonous. And I, I, when I have something on, it kind of keeps me a little more alert. Because some people could argue the other thing, too. It lulls you into, you know, some kind of distraction. But um, I've never felt that way. Well, it depends. If you're playing Yanni, then you'd be sort of, you'd fall asleep. But if you're playing The Clash, um, that would keep you alert. Generally, with the windows rolled down and me yelling and screaming it. Sure. Absolutely. It's, it's important to stay alert. The world needs more alerts. I've read that. Now comes the part of the program where we present to you our next tracks. Kirk, what you got? Today I've been listening to a record I never heard of by a composer I never heard of. And, okay, this happens occasionally. In an email conversation with Laura Kuhn of the John Cage Trust last week, she recommended that I check out a record called International Cloud Atlas by Michael Rouse, M-I-K-E-L Rouse. This was commissioned by the John Cage Trust and a couple of other organizations for the Merce Cunningham Dance Company. John Cage wrote a lot of percussion music for Merce Cunningham's Dance Company back in the early days. And Michael Rouse has a style of music which is quite interesting. There's a lot of rhythm to it, a lot of polyrhythms. This is apparently, I had never heard of him before, apparently this is one of the, the key elements of his music. Reading through his biography and the Wikipedia page, there were a couple of interesting things. He was in a band in Kansas City where he grew up called Tire Tire, which would be Shoot Shoot. And their first gig was opening for Talking Heads in 1978. According to Wikipedia, it was the only band progressive enough to open for Talking Heads. Go figure, it was their first ever gig, so you have to wonder about that. This record is quite interesting. It was for a piece that was performed in 2006. It was scored for multiple iPads, set to shuffle so each audience member had a different realization of the score. It's hard to describe the music. You know, whenever we hear something new, we try to fit it into existing categories or say it sounds like this, it sounds like that. Picture, picture Tuxedo Moon, Penguin Cafe Orchestra, a bit of Steve Reich because of the polyrhythms, some of the trippier Beatles songs of the later albums. Most of the sung melodies are very poppy. This is not 12-tone avant-garde music, but the rhythms are really demanding, and, and it gives a really interesting atmosphere. Anyway, I'd never heard of him. I hadn't even listened to the entire record when Doug called me to start recording today. I'm going to listen to the rest of this, and I'm going to check out more of this guy's music, Michael Rouse. He's got like 25 records. It's really quite a fascinating career. I don't know why I never heard of him, because he moved to New York in 79. He was a downtown composer, and I did hear a lot of that kind of music. So this is called International Cloud Atlas by Michael Rouse. Doug, what's on your turntable today? You know, we don't work these things out ahead of time, but it's an amazing coincidence that some of the things that you like about your pick are some of the things that I like about my pick this week. Extraordinary coincidences. I was listening to Apple Music recently, and one of the thrills I chase is hopefully to hear something that I've never heard before that is very similar to the things that I do like. And it happened. I heard this great rock and roll song, great rockin' and rollin' song, come on. And I'm thinking, is that Delbert McClinton or is that Joe Eli or somebody like that? And it turns out it's this guy from the UK, 
I sound silly that I say some guy from the UK. His name is Lou Lewis. Now, he may be well-known where you're from, but I had never heard of him before, and he had his heyday in the late 70s and early 80s. He played harmonica, sang vocal in, uh, in, in rock bands, in, in essentially pub rock bands. Pub rock is a lot more popular in the UK than it is in the United States. We don't really have a pub rock genre. But uh, I guess, you know, a band like Dr. Feelgood would be the epitome of, of the sort of pub rock that was popular in the late 70s and early 80s when Lou Lewis was doing stuff. As a matter of fact, some of the guys in Dr. Feelgood helped him with some of his earlier albums. This guy can wail, and it's no coincidence that the album I'm listening to is called Save the Whale, W-A-I-L. It's just the sort of thing that I would have listened to had I known about it at the time. Now, extraordinarily, Lou Lewis did a lot of recording with Stiff Records in, in the late 70s, early 80s, and I was paying attention to Stiff Records that at that time. I knew everything from Elvis Costello to Rachel Sweet on the label, but I never ran into this guy. And this album, Save the Whale, is just jam-packed full of great rockin' and rollin', you know, pub rock. I don't, I don't know any other way to put it. It's, it's just... It's like the uh, the stuff that I talked about last week that Joe Strummer used to play, that rockabilly kind of stuff, like Rock Pile, like Dr. Feelgood, like that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I really like it. And it turns out he's he was a pretty popular guy. In fact, he's on Sandinista doing something on some song. I don't know what. I have to go back and look at that. And another thing is there's a couple of cuts on this album. It, you know, I'd almost say it was The Clash playing in the background. It's very close to that kind of gritty rockabilly sound that the class used to like to play. So I, I'm really loving this guy. Lou Lewis is his name. Save the Whale is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>